Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. G'day everybody, welcome back to the podcast for another week. I'm Matt Walsh here with Jake Michaels and Champion Data's Christian Jolly to talk all things footy. Bit of news off the top here. Uh, plenty happening. Jack, Jack Revolts announced his retirement uh, following Nick Nutt and Paddy McCartan this week and a whole bunch last week after we recorded. Ken Inkley's reportedly going to re-sign at Port for two years. Damien Hardwick's on the verge of a return to the coaching fold at uh, at Gold Coast. There's a bit happening, Jake. Um, but we haven't even we're not even going to get a chance to talk about the Matildas because you watched them on on Saturday night, didn't you? I did. You said like you're surprised. I think everybody watched it, didn't they? Well, normally you're just a, such a footy nuff that you don't give anything else the time of day. No, I um I watched it. I was I yeah, watched it live and then flicked over and watched the Carlton Melbourne game from the start. Went back and then skipped. Didn't miss up. much in the first quarter and a bit. Did no, you? not at all. Um, epic. It was great. Yeah, it's just sort of really and and if you don't get around the Far Post podcast, which uh, the girls do on ESPN's suite of podcasts at the moment, they are absolutely killing it with their analysis with their recapping with the emotion with what it means to Australia what it means to, to women's soccer or football in this country as well so highly recommend if you haven't listened to the Far Post podcast uh, get that wherever you get your podcasts where will you be watching on uh, on Wednesday uh, I may be trying to get to a pub but they're all booked out so it's a bit tough at the moment so uh, worst case it's the couch which is not a terrible place to watch uh, sport but um, yeah trying to get a few mates together and uh, maybe we'll just uh, pop into somewhere early okay. and see what we do uh, which piece of news has been the biggest sort of, I don't know, not shock, but like, what's taking your fancy this week? Um, it's probably the least surprising, but Jack Rewalt's retirement. I think that officially now with Cochin gone um, end of an and, era. and Hardwick gone, it's, it is. It is the end of an era. I know Dusty's still there and there's a few a few others, but it does feel end of an era and it really is dynasty now over. And a lot of people probably said it was it already was, but... I'd argue. I mean, I had them as... They were my flag tip at the start of the year, and I wasn't mm. alone. There were a few people that were, were really high on the Tigers. Um, I think it's clear now that they're about to enter a new phase, and, and that sort of signifies it. Well, you'd look at his production, Revolt's production over time, Christian, and sort of see that it would be probably trending down. But given we haven't seen Tom Lynch for most of this season and there are doubts about his body, would it have made sense to kind of keep him on as a as a backup option? Or I mean, Again, yeah, it's, it depends. You know, does... Tom Lynch isn't a young kid that needs you know an experienced head next to him, so I think it was time, right time for Rewalt to move on. I know when Lynch was playing, yeah, the, the inside fifty targets had dropped considerably for Jack, and then come back up as soon as injury. So he's sort of pro- probably playing a. But he probably doesn't a, want to be the number one. And that's what I'm saying. He's probably playing a larger role than he originally planned to this year. And it's probably mm. taken a greater toll on the body, but again, he still you, kicked 31 goals, and he's been for his age, someone who's nearly 35. He's been more than serviceable. And I think he's the type of player that would have made, you know, Samson Ryan, Jacob Bow, other guys that have played in the forward line have probably got a lot of, you know, on coach, on-field coach, on coaching from Jack Rewalt. So I think he's been valuable in that sense. In terms of his impact on the dynasty that you mentioned, Jake, how important was he? I mean, does he is he the number one guy? Is he, I, mean, I think Dusty's probably number one. Where does he rate among, like, Dimmer? Yeah, it's, it's a hard one. I think Dusty's clearly been the best player of the of the of the. Dynasty and the th- and certainly the three premierships and three Norm Smith medals, but I think so much of the culture setting was built around Trent Koch and becoming such a captain at 22 and really driving new standards. Obviously Hardwick as well and the whole the whole playing group, but I I think you could I think it's, you can put Martin one and and Koch in two, but Jack is probably the third. You don't rate coaches. I think it's comfortably um, Dusty Hardwick than whoever you want. Kicking only eight hundred goals. Yeah, I know. I think it's, it's a shame you won't get another name I'll throw up. You might have been only there for two of the flags. Tom Lynch, Alex Rance, Alex Rance. Bit of a forgotten fella in that kind of mm. 
the dynasty as well. And I, I guess it's kind of like when you get two of the three, and you, it's like another thing is you look at Tom Lynch comes in at the end of 2018, um, obviously wins the two of them, but because he's not there for the first, you kind of you, you look at that, and it's almost like Buddy leaving Hawthorne uh, for Sydney and, and unable to win a, a flag there. Mm. It's it's interesting times, and there are some great names that are retiring. I reckon and, we've asked. Sorry, I reckon we've asked this question a couple of times on the podcast. Who? So now the, he is well, pretty much done. Nick or Jack? Revolt yeah. or Nat Nui? <laughs> um, Re- the Rewalt. Uh, oh. Better player? Whose career do you take? I think you take. Oh, I think you clearly Jacks take Jack because of the flags. But yeah. but in isolation, looking at just sort of. I, I don't think it, everyone always had Nick uh, streets ahead of Jack. I don't think it's that. I don't think the gap is that far. In fact, uh, you can make a lot of arguments that it's Jack. Yeah, you can, and I will. <laughs> yeah, no, I honestly do. I think what he's done, yeah. um, he wasn't, he didn't have the athleticism or a lot of the physical gifts of Nick, but his production and his impact was every bit as good. Um, and as we said, he was he was uh, one of the most important pieces to one of the great teams of the modern era. Uh, Nick Natnui, two hundred and thirteen games, one of the the all time highlight reels. Um, just one of the the stars of the competition. That it's a shame we didn't get to see. Uh, fully fit for longer, uh, and he he sort of bows out, having having no real kind of like I don't know tangible conclusion to his career, which is a shame. Yeah, and I'm almost I'm almost sadder losing Nat Nui the way we have than I am losing Buddy because at least I mean Buddy wow. had you know just because Buddy finished his game, it was injured, he was on the bench, but we yeah. got to see Buddy this year, and we sort of knew the end was coming. With Nat Nui, we haven't seen him play for so long. He's caught it kind of strung us along by re-signing a new contract yeah. and seeing that he could get his body right and. Again, a little bit of selfishness here, but I've, I have said to my kids that I want them to watch Nick Natanui play. They've got footy cards of him, and they're sort of, you know, he's quite identifiable, and they sort of know who he is, but they've never seen him play football. And I sort of mm. said this, he was a superstar at the game, and he sort of... Superstar? I would I would definitely say he's a superstar. Wow. So, again, an easy definition for me for the superstar is, will he be first-year eligible Hall of Fame entry I think he will be I think he'll be straight into the Hall of Fame as soon as he's eligible and I'm trying to gain three All-Australians see I don't doubt that he's in the I don't I mean they've got to they've got to put a Ruckman in the All-Australian team unfortunately oh, come but on. I don't doubt that he will be end up in the Hall of Fame um, superstar though I, I disagree I, I and look I he was a very good player what's your definition of superstar he was, he if he's was, not he one was one of the best players if in he's the competition su- he was dominant he if would, he he would tap superstar. it down he'd get the ball on the ground he'd run 40 kick inside 50 and He's a one-man band at times. He's a high, he was a highlight reel player that his he will have a highlights package as good as any player to have played the game in the modern era. Was he a superstar player in the sense that he led to winning and did it week in week out? No, I, I don't think so. And I wish him well in if his retirement. Pa- and I wish him well in his retirement. And I think he um, it's a shame he has suffered so many injuries. And I get that he has played over two hundred games, but. He has been one of the more overrated players of this oh. era. And I think it's... I, th- I don't think that's... Let me ask you this. Who's a better player? Todd Goldstein or Nick Natanui? I think everyone would say Natanui without even without even thinking about it. Goldstein has him covered in just about every area. If Natanui had been part of that 2018 flag campaign, does your thinking change? You go, no, you go to three All-Australians, I, I, no. two best and fairest, a premiership, a mark of the year. No? I mean, Sam Walsh has a mark of the year. <laughs> Okay. No, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't think that changes anything. But just just a quick one here. So how many games... He played how many? 210 games? 213. 200, yeah. How many of those did he... In, in How many of those games did he have 20 disposals and a goal? 20? One Two. every 10? Two. Okay. Two. 
two occasions he did that. Todd Goldstein has done that 14 times. So again, with, with Nat Nui, I'll challenge you, and again, probably we'll move on quickly, but <laughs> yeah, the uh, the rating system that we've, we, you know, that we've been talking about on this pod was uh, around since 2010. It sort of, it was early in his career, but it was for Cyril and Nick Natanui that that rating system was almost not not designed for, but they were the champions of that rating system in terms of it took all the quantity out of it and just looked at the quality of things. So you, you think about Cyril Rioli, he wasn't getting 20 touches and kicking four goals like Stevie J was each week, but Cyril Rioli clearly came up higher on the rating system. Same as Natanui, it wasn't about... It wasn't about how often he did something it was how well he did all the things that he did. Um, okay, really quickly before we do move on, are you taking? So he's drafted two in that draft mm-hmm. at two thousand eight with uh, what's ahead of him. Mm. There are some names below him. Are you taking Nick Nat or the player? I'll, I'll list them. Daniel Rich. Uh, am I take? So hang on a second. Who am I taking? Who are you taking them? above? Are you ta- who are you taking higher? As, so who's had a better career? Who are you taking higher if you redrafted them, knowing their careers? Daniel okay. Rich or Nick Nat? Uh, Nick Nat. Michael Hurley. Nick Nat. Steel Sidebottom. Steel. Shuey. Shuey. Ballantyne. Nat Nui. Beams. Beams, definitely. Shields. Shields. Nat Nui. Uh, Sloan. Um, Sloan was a very good player. Um, Still is. Similar-ish in a way to Nat Nui. I mean, he he's had a lot of injuries and we probably haven't seen the best of him. That's a coin flip. That's a hard one to answer. Michael Walters. Nick Nat and Zebel. Oh, Nick Nat. Okay. So it's I got no issue with that. I'm not saying there's a few players that I take ahead and there's a few that would clearly be behind. I'm just saying I think the the other thing that always bothered me with Nick Nat and Nui was the amount of time he would spend on the ground. Yeah, that's fair. You know, for a guy like so there's two ways of looking at it. You say, well he's playing sixty seven percent game time, or he's sitting on the bench for a quarter and a quarter. A quarter and a quarter of another quarter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, gotcha. And so it's like, okay, that's great. And it's, his impact is so good. But it's like, well, yeah. Can you imagine how good Dusty or uh, or Danger or Petrarca would be if, they, if they're getting a, if they playing 10 minutes and then getting a seven-minute rest? So I, I just think that his impact, as great as it was, is he the first player I want to pick? At, at any point in time, was he a top 10 player in the league? I don't think so. And I think, I think it, we, we look at his highlights... Um, and that shapes what we think of him as a player far too much. Uh, look, fair fair debate either way. So at Footy Tips on Twitter, whether you agree with Jake, whether you disagree with Jake, let us know. Um, plenty to get to, as I said off the top. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Blues. We're going to talk some kick-in stats and Tim Englishgate. Uh, set of bounce attendances and take some listener questions as well. But really quickly before we crack into things, something you noticed from the weekend that grabbed your attention. Yeah, um, so George Hewitt played... Great game for the Blues. Um, 23 contested possessions. Um, second most he's ever had in a game. The one thing I noticed with his game, though, so we know he's a big handballer. We've spoken about this before. Um, he he had 16 kicks for the game against mm-hmm. the Ds. That's the most he's ever had in any game that he's ever played, George Hewitt. 16 kicks. The funniest part of it is he still had more handballs than kicks, 17. <laughs> so... It's clear he loves using his hands when he can. But, yeah, 16 kicks, the most he's ever had. Yeah. How many games he played, roughly? 150. That was his 152nd. Yeah. yeah. Good stat. Christian? Yeah, well, we've already covered uh, one of the guys that was in my stat. But, yeah, just from some of the uh, rafted announcements, uh, retirement announcements that we've had, there was some names that sort of stuck out to me. So, Nat Nui, obviously, we just spoke about. Ben Cunnington and Isaac Smith. So, three very different players and sort of seemed like a just chosen oh, see, three see, random players. Cunning, but Kimmy Cunnington and Smith over there, Nat Nui. There's a, there's a stat here that sort of they all sort of um, 
appearing at sort of either end of the table. So Nick Nat Nui talk about across his career, probably one of the things he didn't do is just win easy ball, just easy, you know, and it was probably one of the things he was, uh, a big knock on his game was just being able to get that link up mark and handball receives and just get some easy ball. So across his career, he won 75, uh, 76% of his possessions came from a contest, which is the highest percentage of any, I've looked at the top 300 players under our, since 99, top 300 players for games played since 99 under our system. So, Highest contested possession rate of anyone, 76%. And the next highest across their that's career... Not, that's, sorry, that's, but that's not a good thing. I can see Matt here like nodding his oh, head like in well, appreciation. But we, we were crushing I'm, Matt Rowell eight weeks ago for this exact thing, not being able to win ball on the outside. And, and, and Cyril had a really high number for a small forward as well. So it is, it's that part of their game where it's like, well, they just don't get easy ball. Imagine how, how much they could boost and fatten their numbers up and mm. probably make you happier if he got the 20 touches because he's getting five or ten more handball receives. But... Again, all of his work was done inside at the stoppages and, and around that. So as I said, the next highest in that time, 64% Charlie Dixon. <laughs> so he's a, he's a long way ahead of the rest of the competition. Ben Cunnington, 55.4% of his uh, possessions would be won in contest. Yep. That's the second highest percentage of any midfielder. Um, again, Patrick Dangerfield's ahead of him, 55.5%. So every chance that by the end of Dangerfield's career, he drops below Cunnington. Well, too many contested then, possessions. He's overrated. And then, and then Isaac Smith's down the other end. So we talk about contested possessions and, you know, some players are playing on the outside and getting too many cheap stats. Well, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, discount Isaac Smith's career at all. He had the third lowest contested possession rate of anyone. So only 24% of his possessions uh, were won from a contest. The only two guys below him across their careers are Grant Birchall and Brad Hill, two other sort of players in that Hawthorne three-peat era, mm. who weren't big on winning, the, you know, as a team, they weren't big on winning the contest. They were about sort of... But also longevity. So, you know, avoid the contest and you can probably play a bit longer as well. Yeah. Um, so Good half one. the time, just, just as a side note to you, half the time when I'm nodding along during this podcast, I'm just planning what I'm saying next and looking at the nah, run sheets. I, so. I just thought I'd throw that one in there. Christian, uh, you're a stats guy. What's what's the percentage play here, right? So your side's less than a goal down. Maybe there's 45 seconds on the clock. The other team's just scored it behind. You need to kick a goal to win. Where do you want the guy who's taken the third most contested marks for your team? Somewhere outside the 50, yep. yeah. Probably Be a marking option. Yep. <laughs> so Tim English took the kick out with about a minute to go for the... The dogs and and they needed a win because now they're oh I know I watched it <laughs> they're spotting the top eights in jeopardy um, whether it was his choice uh, Ed Richards was floating it, around nearby yeah. um, whether it was a set play you know how we talked about sort of two minute drills last week briefly mm. um, whether that was uh, set up by Bevo or, or was um, was discussed in in in, in previous but he, he took the or he, he didn't take the kick out he sort of walked out of the the square took three bounces he took his first bounce one step out of the goal square did a little loop the loop. Yeah. And then and then kicks it towards the boundary line, which I don't know. It sounds like when you've got time not on your side, mm. uh, everything he did was just in the handbook the of what not to do. Yeah, it was, and it was total. It was just incompetence. So why he's taking the kick, and I've absolutely no idea. So we know my feeling is about Ruckman. So <laughs> having them take the kick, and was the last player I want doing it. Yeah, taking a bounce one step out, and then two more. <laughs> yeah, two more. He probably took. 15 steps and took three bounces but then the fact that he's not up there to be that that chain in the, the link in the chain so to speak to to move the ball forward and then taking the ball wide where it's easier for Hawthorne to def- to defend it it was just everything that that could go wrong did go wrong he, in that he, sequence he did do everything wrong including the as i said that kick to a one on one on the boundary you just even if you looked into the corridor and saw contests you're going to go to those contests rather than one on the boundary but the one thing that they did do well, and I sort of said that clearly tug-in-cheek, Ned Reeves was the one chasing him. So you took the Hawthorne Ruckman <laughs> yeah, out yeah, of it. So you, you, you could go down the line because there was no Hawthorne Ruckman there, but unfortunately he just went a bit too wide. Um, so 
He's t- that's the only kick in he's taken all year. Mm, probably the last one or two, I think. Any any peculiar got us thinking. So any peculiar kick in stats that we can hang our hat on? Do Ruckman take kick ins? I mean, as a general rule, I'm assuming not, especially in more recent times. But have have Ruckman taken kick ins historically? Now, nah, so the only other Ruckman we've got taking a kick in this year is Ben Miller for Richmond, who in his first two or three games was playing as a key defender, defender and has probably yeah. moved into a Ruckman this year. So. Uh, they're the only two that have done it all year. Probably going back, again, some of the names that appear for Ruckman taking kick-ins. Dean Cox did do it a fair bit for West Coast, so um, only got sort of his last 145 games of his career here, but he did it 18 times. Um, and probably the only other one... not much. <laughs> the, only, the only other one, again, not many times here. It was only five times, but it, it seemed like more. Chris Bryan, who used to play for Carlton and Collingwood, was a Ruckman with oh, a booming... That's right. I think he was a right footer still, but he could kick at 60 metres. So, yeah. I'm surprised. again, I cut this off at 2008, so maybe he had a few before 2008. The so they're, kick. they're the two Ruckman that, st- uh, that come to mind. But yeah, all the other Ruckman that have had kick-ins across their career are guys like Reece Stanley, Paddy Ryder, Mark Blixar, Stefan Martin, who have all sort of started as... Defenders, yeah. but even of, looking at these around. numbers, like seven, six, six, yeah, quite low. Um, so. Yeah, uh, a quick fun one here from our friends at Useless AFL Stats. If you don't, if you don't follow these guys on uh, on the socials, please do because some of the stuff they have is great. Um, so there have been six instances this year where a player has had a centre bounce attendance, a ruck contest, and a kick in. Uh, ben Miller round seven. Harry Himmelberg did it twice, nine and twelve. Harry Sheasel did it in round eighteen. Noah Bolter in round twenty, and then of course Tim English in round twenty-two. The teams are zero and six in those games, <laughs> so don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good stuff. Uh, I think I don't think Tim will be putting his hand up to be uh, taking a kick in anytime soon. Hey, quickly before we move on, no one asked about this in the press conference yeah. with Bebo. Yeah, yeah. So that was. I another... know that Brett Bebo is a bristly guy, but I still think it's an interesting. I mean, it was the it was of... the. Yeah, it was the story. And I mean, you could tell by Anthony Hudson's reaction when he's just like, it's Tim English bringing the ball into play. <laughs> so no, it, it had to be asked. I don't know. Maybe there weren't uh, weren't a lot of media folk down in, in Lonnie for the game. Uh, the Blues have made it eight wins in a row now uh, with victories in this streak, uh, including the wins over Port Adelaide, Collingwood and now Melbourne, which means that they're sort of firmly cementing them as a premiership fancy among the bookies and the fans. That's undeniable at this point. No, I know that... Long-suffering Carlton fans are kind of deny, deny, deny as long as they can. But um, no, no, they're right in, uh, in it up to their eyeballs. Uh, the impressive part has been the fact they've been doing it with a, a number of best 22 players missing for the last sort of six weeks. Doing it without, yeah, I would argue three of the best eight players. Certainly so, certainly with Walsh, Chera and Mackay. And you can throw another three three names, uh, Silvani and McGovern and uh, Kennedy. There's there's plenty of other players mm. that haven't played too. Um, but yeah, that's, that's certainly the one half. The other half is who we've beaten. And I just said Wev because I shouldn't say that. But Fine. who Carlton has two beaten. bucks in the jar? Carlton, uh, Collingwood, Melbourne, Port Adelaide in the last five weeks. St Kilda also was above Carlton when they played. They were above, but the, they were the three teams ev- that everyone thought, well, it's the premiership race is going to be decided, you know, one by one of those three. Carlton's yeah. beaten all three of them. The uh, add Geelong in it earlier in the year as well. I mean, there's no no team that the Blues can't beat. I think it's as simple as that. Well, it also means that a number of lesser lights, and I use that term sort of, you know, loosely, has uh, have had to step respect. up. Um, have had to step up, and and there are names in the in the twenty three each week that, um, all things considered, if Carlton becomes full strength in the next few weeks heading into finals, probably won't be in that team, and and they've been having career best years. Yeah. So again, looking at um, probably the last four or five weeks, there's been some guys that have come into the team like Paddy Dow, uh, Zach Fisher, probably the last two weeks. So again, looking at their whole 
seasons as a totality. They haven't had career best years this year, but probably playing career best sort of patches. Mm. But the guys that have had career best seasons, so since round one onwards, obviously Charlie Kerno's up there, Chera, who you just mentioned, out injured, and McGovern, who's out injured at the moment. Uh, and the next four, Jesse Motlop, Brody Kemp, Corey Durden, and Matt Owies. So again, not not the in and under midfielders or the ruckmen. It's it's the guys at either end. Um, Kemp and obviously, yeah, three small forwards that are sort of putting the pressure on. So another sort of thing that we looked at last week, I think. Um, so their top three rated players this week was Doherty, Hewitt, um, and I think Kemp ended up third for them. So I think they're three names that have been previously. But of their last eight games, they've had, you know, obviously 24 spots, uh, 24 players, you know, uh, for top three players across those eight games. They've had 15 names roll through mm. those 24 spots. So, again, almost, you know, three-quarters of the team at least been a top three player for him in the last eight yeah, weeks. That's, that's so impressive. And we have talked about teams that could run the board from the second half of the to the top eight. Is this a team that you genuinely can see giving trouble to those top four teams? Oh, I, I, 100%. I mean, I just said it. They've beaten them all except Brisbane. Um, they can beat anyone in the top eight I have no doubt about that the problem is and I don't care how hot you are going into finals the reality is they're going to have to win four because they're not going to be making top four um, and you can go back to that middle part of the year where they were seven and eight uh, uh, one one of eight or whatever it was um, and that's going to be the struggle so I'm not convinced that Carlton can do it because winning winning four finals is something that we just don't see uh, yeah it's um Exciting times for the Blues. Are you paying attention? You're, uh, I'm, I'm paying attention. Uh, no, <laughs> another stat caught my eye. Just going oh, back to go. this Bulldogs thing. I, I can't believe this. So, for raw effectiveness from kickouts, Bailey Dale is 106 from 106 this year. Yeah, so a little bit of an asterisk on that. That includes... So, when I looked at this number, it takes into account... So, it's probably why I wrote it down. A kick-in, again, once you leave the square, that's an effective kick-in. So, it's looking yeah. at who had the next possession because it is taking into account... And that's why... Kick-ins are treated different to when you're in the square to when you leave the square, just because you can be under pressure once you leave the square, so you're back into general play. So again, there's a, there's a little bit on. Uh, I think he's only turned the ball over to the opposition um, uh, very rarely coming out once he's come out of the square. But yeah, I started to look at sort of yeah players that sort of had the hundred percent effectiveness for kick-ins, and my first table I realised okay the stat is a bit silly because once you leave the square now that is an effectiveness for a kick-in, but. Mm. Just on the fact of leaving the square, I think we spoke about it uh, a few weeks ago with Nick Dacos. Um, so obviously he's 51 of his 51 kick-ins this year. He's left the square to kick in. Um, so he's had the most um, kick-ins that are 100% of leaving the square. His whole career, so since the last year, he's done 104 times out of 104. So every time he's given the ball at the kick-in, he knows to leave the square. Quite funny that the player that does it the least is probably the guy that didn't grow up reading stat tables and things in the Herald Sun. Connor McKenna's only done it 53% of his kick-ins, so I think he needs to understand what a disposal Free is in stat. a stat table and uh, yeah. just get your foot outside of the square. If, but if the um, if you're still in there when the umpire calls play on, even if you kick it from inside That'll the square, st- it'll still count as a, as a kick, won't it? Um, again, not once if you're under pressure no so if someone's coming at you if someone's allowed to run past the mark and come closer to you okay. that'll count I as a general if the play kick I thought play on it then it was almost like it was 
yeah, yeah. Again, we'll, we'll still if you if you kick it as the umpire calls play and the man on the mark doesn't have time to move, then it's still an unpressured kick. But if the man on the mark starts to move towards you, then you're under pressure, and it's a slightly different kick category. Get a stat for that. <laughs> uh, you mentioned briefly centre bounce attendances before. Mm. Um, we thought we'd do a little bit of a, a look at who the most effective centre bounce players are in the comp with a couple of rounds left because we've got a decent enough sample size. And and in terms yep. of like the the win rate of the clearance uh, for certain players when they're in that centre bounce, of course, there's you know four players for each team so it might not be specifically like too strictly related but there are a couple of names that are surprising on both sides whether the team wins the, the clearance or whether the team loses the clearance yeah exactly so you talk about center bounce attendances there's so many ways to sort of break it down so you know the easiest way is when i'm in there how often does my team win the clearance so if you look at the top 200 players for attendances this year zach bailey when he's been in there brisbane's won the clearance 50 percent of the time so Talk about centre bounce clearances. Most people think 50% is not a great number because 50-50. Not 100% not but... of centre bounces result in a clearance. So yep. to be up mm. around 46 to 45% is usually where teams are. In so that, there's in a secondary that, in bounce that doesn't count as a centre clearance. Correct, yeah. yeah. It'll, it'll How often would that, would that be about one in four or five times? Uh, no, I think one in seven and a half. Uh, centre bounce. I haven't, I've looked at the secondary stoppage rate around the ground. Centre bounce is probably a bit... It'll be... Um, Rarer to have a secondary stoppage after a centre bounce than a throw-in or a ball-up. They're more mm. likely to mm. have a secondary stoppage. But yeah, it is. It's it's sort of, you know, one in six or one in seven um, don't have a clearance attached to it. So yeah, raw numbers, Zach Bailey. So when he's in there, they win at 50% of the time. But again, you look at when he's not in there in the games he played, Brisbane's won at 47% of the time. So not, not a huge differential. Yep. So whether he can say he's the best centre bounce player or not, I'm not sure. Whereas Max Gorn, second, 49.7%. But then you can look at when you're in there compared to when you're not in there and just your your percentage differential. So again, Darcy Parrish is the number one centre bounce clearance player in the competition for centre bounce clearances per game. He's also got the best attendance differential of anyone, so it sort of makes sense. So when he's been in there, um, Essendon are plus 7% for clearance tips. So they win the clearance 48% of the time lose it 41% of the time. So there's plus 7% when he's in there. And that's when, the greatest differential. Well, it comes into when he's not in there, they are negative 21% for clearance differential. So that's a 28% swing between, you know, from it's plus big, 7 to negative big. 21. That is the biggest in the competition. So I, they're, I they're 28% better off. I don't think off. enough credit, Parrish. And again, he's the number one centre bounce clearance player. So he's been in there has been 371 three years, times and he's been absent 95 times. So, he, he you know, he's not is missing that, a is lot. out? As in not playing, or is no? That so this the... is only in the games you've right. played. So absent will be either on the bench or in a different position, one or the other. Yep. This doesn't include the games you don't play. So it's it's that choice. They they can use you in the centre bounce, and they don't use you. So as I said, they use you more often than not. But he's clearly got the best differential. The second one interests me is Samson Ryan, who's been right up there for Richmond all year. Richmond, Richmond are, again off the top of my Samson, head. Said Dimmer. Um, def- <laughs> Richmond are definitely bottom three for centre bounce clearances this year and you look at guys like Tim Taranto who goes in nearly every centre bounce he'll probably have a differential of negative 40 so you know for they're, the they're, yeah, for, for the whole year Samson Ryan when he's been in there which is 112 times this year they're plus 8 so nothing special but they're in the positive when he's in there when he hasn't been in there so when they've been rolling with their usual midfielders or ruckman negative 50 so again, when you turn it into percentages, he's got a 26% swing. So he spoke about Darcy Parrish being 28% better That's, uh, when he's in there. They're 26% better when Samson Ryan's been in there this year. How does year. it compare to Nank, for That's instance? Good, yeah. yeah, so again, Nank is quite even. When he's in there, they're negative 30. When he's not in there, I think they're negative 28 or 27. So again, most of them are negative 
when you're in there are maybe not as bad when you're not in there or sort of, you know, your, your negative numbers are going up. Whereas Samson Ryan is turning him from a negative centre bounce clearance team into a positive centre bounce clearance team, which Dusty was also doing in the second half of the year, but again, doesn't come up as high. This is what I love about this sort of stuff because you could give me 300 names to guess and I, I never would Samson Ryan? No. Yeah. yeah. So again, as I said, the, the number one, Darcy Parrish, best centre bounce clearance player. That, yeah. Samson Ryan, a surprise. And then Max Gordon's three. So again, another one that you sort of know. He's been in there 282 times. They're plus 32. When he hasn't been in there, they're negative 24 for centre bounce clearances. So again, a 24% swing um, when he isn't when he hasn't been in there. So you can sort of see again. So that, a, lot of the, that, a lot of the guys on this list that I'm looking at in front of me are, are number one rucks, with the exception of being sort of Rory Sloan and Marcus Bontempelli. So yeah, so they're the prime movers, contested kind yeah, of guys. Yeah, which again, so going back to the Max Gorn stuff and the Brody Grundy stuff, this sort of made sense of well, you have to play Gorn in the centre. He, yeah, yeah. He's a very good. He he plays much better when he's the centre mouse ruckman. Plus, Melbourne are clearly got a much better. To me, it's, it's saying that the, it's the fall off between like the number one ruck. And then the number two ruck in the middle is quite is quite drastic when you have the names like like uh, Gorn, uh, Laddams, Lysette, uh Kieran Briggs is in here as well. So yeah, and a couple of these guys would have been ruckman. They yeah, tell me. and doing it across the whole season, you probably some of these guys might have started with a second ruckman in the team, but then once Kieran Briggs is playing so well as a ruckman, it's like, well, we're just going to roll with the one ruckman, and yeah. when we're not in there, we're going to get hurt. Uh, so, yeah. um, I have looked at it the other way. Um, as go. in the biggest change in, in, in the negative. So getting worse once they put you in the centre bounce. And it's it's a name I don't really want to read out this year because it's getting one of the one of the numbers you can just throw out to the side. Ben Cunnington was actually the worst differential this year. So he was in there 136 times for North, uh, negative 19 centre bounce clearances when he was in there. He was out 103 times, so almost a 50-50 split, and they were plus nine when he was at. So 23% swing. Uh, when he was in there, and uh, compared to when he was not in there, so it's one of the best weird, stoppage. He's yeah, such a good inside. Probably when there's more player. players around a contest, like a secondary ball up, I feel like he'd be a bit more effective. Maybe when like there's, if the... there's only four on four or three on three when you take out the rucks who have just jumped. Yeah. Um, you can kind of get exposed with with foot pace, I guess. Out of well, hundred percent. And I mean, I I love Ben Cunnington. He's been great, great, um, you know, player for for a while. But yeah, if the ball's not down his throat, it's high chance that the other team is going to exit the stoppage. So just a couple of other names in the bad one. So Caleb Daniel was used in there a little bit for the Bulldogs. He's the second worst differential. Jai Caldwell, third. Mm. So again, I feel like a lot of the times he might be switching with Darcy Parrish. I'd love to have a look at how often it's Parrish in there instead of Caldwell mm. and vice versa. And Caldwell's actually got a negative centre bounce differential. Hayden McLean's up there. But the fifth name also interests me, Jackson McRae, another one that we've sort of scratching our heads of why Luke Beveridge hasn't been Down playing here. him in the centre bounces, been playing in the half-old flanks and things like that. These numbers sort of justify that, sort of saying, well, when they have put him in the centre bounce, they've actually started to lose the clearances and they win it when he hasn't been in there. So an interesting one that, again, probably playing out of position, but as I said, negative 13 when he's been in there, plus 34 when they haven't used him in there. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, trying to change their mix up in their centre bounces. Hayden McLean really putting his hand up to be just a full-time forward, I think. Just uh, just go in there and do nothing. <laughs> yeah. uh, another low for the West Coast Eagles this week. 101-point uh, loss in the Derby. Um, biggest loss in that matchup's history for the Eagles. Uh, how does it rank among biggest drubbings in rivalry games? Yeah, as he said, so it's the... Biggest loss for the Eagles, but the second biggest overall margin uh, in a derby um, all up. So the biggest margin in a derby game was 117 points back in round 6, 2000. Um, we saw 101 points on the weekend. So, again, looking at inner state rivalries, if we want to call it that way. Obviously, the, most, the other most... They're all rivalries, aren't they? <laughs> the most other popular inner state one is uh, Adelaide versus Port Adelaide, obviously the showdown. 
Never got over more than 84 points. Adelaide beat Port Adelaide right. in, in 2017 by 84 points. No, so no, we've never seen it. Um, yeah, never seen it approach 100. Sydney GWS, another one, uh, the Battle of the Bridge. 129 points is the biggest margin in those. And surprisingly, again, I think you asked me pre-pod, that was the first time they played, wasn't it? It was actually no. the third time they played. So um, the first two times they played, Sydney won, but not probably by a, a, you know, a massive margin mm. like you would have expected. It, t- it sort of took them um, a year or two to finally beat them. And Brisbane Gold Coast again. 2019 was Brisbane's biggest win in a Q clash by 91 points. So that was about four or five years into uh, Gold Coast existence. Um, so yeah, the, the 101 points sort of... If you're looking at interstate, you know, interstate rivalries, it's probably the third biggest result behind behind the Battle of the Bridge in 2013 and the 2000 uh, derby result. Grim times. Yeah, I mean, two, uh, especially after two, a, a win and then probably should have been another win against yeah. the Bombers. Um, Spent their tickets. Go and back I, home I'm and then get... I'm pretty sure they were up 14 to zip as well to yeah. start yeah, that game. They so they got a little bit of a head start. Uh, the key start from every game where we look at uh, every game from the weekend just going past and look at where it was won or lost. Um, the Pies and the Cats, second time this year, they've both scored over 100 in their games. Yeah, just those two sort of really open each other up type thing. So it was a really open game, end-to-end scoring. So Collingwood scored 57 points from back half across the game. We know Collingwood loved that high-end ball movement and, and, and looked really good moving it from deep in defence. But yeah, 57 points from the back half. Uh, the most scored against Geelong this year is 58, and that was by Collingwood in round one. So this mm-hmm. is the second most uh, back half points. Brisbane, uh, sorry, Geelong conceded 47. Oh, sorry, Geelong scored 47 points from back half chains, um, which is the second most anyone scored against Collingwood from back half chains. So again, Brisbane in round four earlier this season scored 49 points from behind centre uh, against Collingwood. So yeah, both these teams sort of scored high from defensive 50 chains and higher than those teams usually give up. So mm. both teams just went end to end. Um, but uh, yeah, again, Collingwood who got the got the chocolates on the night. Forty five inside fifties. Their equal third fewest in any game this year, but had thirty shots at goal. Their sixth most in any game. So they sort of scored from sixty four percent of their entries. That's the third highest team in any third highest percentage of any team in any game this season. To do that against a Geelong defence, you know your, your forward lines uh, on song. Uh, the Ruse, we almost well, they almost got the job done over the, the Bombers, which would have ended Essendon's finals hopes. Gee, they... They really should have lost the Bombers to West Coast and North in back-to-back weeks. Classic game where someone announces their retirement. Legend of the club being Ben Cunnington. And like, if you're the if you're the team that's playing, if you're a fan of the team that's playing North this week, you just you just go, oh no. Um, and it almost transpired. If I was he Ben Cunnington, who had twenty-seven? Yeah, Does he get yeah. a vote? Yeah, I think he does. I think he gets. Well, I think Martin Parish Cunnington, Cunnington would be the three. But if I'm Ben Cunnington, I'm filthy with um, Jack Zebel. I mean, last few minutes played a, a lot of football with you, and just completely lets you down at the end of the game. And it's not the first time this has happened this year. Mm. You know, North fans will tell you this is the third, probably the third time this year North have been in the game in the in the final quarter and an actual chance to win. And Jack Zebel, he's just turning the ball over in in back fifty or kicking the ball out on the full straight to the opposition, just making really really poor decisions. Um, what do you see from North and or Essendon? Yeah, so, I mean, Essendon were the number one uh, transition team for the week. So going from defensive 50 to 450, they were number one. They were sort of being able to move the ball end-to-end. But North Melbourne actually outscored them from D50 chains by plus 11 points. So as, as well as Essendon do go end-to-end, they still have they, they don't have any potency they lack in their forward line. So, again, they were able to move the ball quite easy, just couldn't put the score on the scoreboard. 
Um, and just, the, yeah, the, the way they played. So the short kicking, Essendon kicked short the most of any side for the round. So really tried to spot up high possession and, and use their skill. Whereas North were probably more happy just to bang it forward to contest. So they had the, they kicked long the second most of any team. Um, but again, yeah, looking at North, and you sort of talk about the two main score sources that you have, clearances and turnovers. They're clearly... Stage one of their their rebuild is it's it's coming from the clearances at the moment. So seven times this year they've outscored their opposition from clearances, including on the weekend against Essendon. Um, and four of those seven games they've outscored them by at least two goals from stoppages. So a pretty good domination from clearances uh, in those games. Whereas they've only outscored their opposition five times from turnovers this year. Four of those five by by under a goal. So they might have scored one or two more points from turnovers. So again they smashed Essendon from the clearances, and it seems to be where Essendon uh, where North Melbourne is sort of probably starting their rebuild is they're going to be a really good contest team I think in and under which is similar to where Adelaide started let's get the contest and the inside game um, sort of intact and then we can look at the bookends and the scoring from there uh, Swannies the third term is where they really sort of kicked into gear and took the game away from the Suns who have a good record at the SCG and it kind of looked like that might go a different way at different parts but uh, the Swans were too strong yeah so at the 10 minute mark of the third quarter it was three points the difference um, Swans were ahead and I think in that time, Sydney had scored 39 points from clearances uh, and six from turnovers. Um, sorry, other way around. They scored 18 points from clearances and 50 points from turnovers. So of their 68 points, most of it had come from turnover game um, against the Suns. And it was quite an open game. Um, teams are sort of taking high marks and high uncontested possession count. Whereas Sydney sort of turned it more of an... And it's probably the second time Sydney's been able to do this, or probably done it a few more times this year, where they've turned it more into a scrap in the second half and really made it a more stoppage game. So... They outscored the the Suns from the 10-minute mark onwards of the third quarter, but it was all from clearances. So they scored 39 of their final 45 points from clearances, Sydney. Is that is that a thing that they can like the coaches can sort of say, this is where we want to source our scores well, from? Well, again, it's no, you don't want to source... Again, you can't plan to sco- yeah. source your scores from clearances. The you just want to so drastic at, after a certain point. Exactly. So it's more about, okay, once we get the clearances, we want to get on the spread and sort of, you know, high, you know, high possession, which is the way both teams were playing in their first half, whereas it seemed like Sydney were a lot more direct out of the clearances, just trying to get the ball going forward straight out of clearances and win the next contest rather than... Again, you can win a clearance by handballing the ball 20 metres backwards and finding space at the back of a stoppage. Mm. There wasn't much of that for Sydney. It was just go forward, take ground, and, and turn clearances into scores. Did I forget my thing I noticed? Did I say that at the start, Jake, off the top of your head? Um, I reckon you skipped it. I might have, because I'm looking at it now, and, I'm, and my thing that I noticed. So this is we can almost add this back in. Nah, we'll leave it as it is. <laughs> um, the crows. So the crows and the lions was another thriller, and we've talked on this podcast before about having 30 or more scoring shots and the winning percentage that you get from those games, and it's quite high. It's like 96 percent, or if you have 30 or more scoring shots, you win. You know, 90 whatever it is percent of your games. Well, the crows had 31 scoring shots. They only had tw- uh, uh, um, shots at goal rather. They had uh, 28 scoring shots, 31 shots at goal, uh, and lost by six points. So it was a really, really close one in terms of that metric. Uh, and the Lions were just able to hang on at home. Yeah, and again, one of the stats I put down for this game. So Adelaide, plus 22 for tackles. I mean, plus three for contested possessions, plus 50 for uncontested possessions. So it's really smashed in and, and won sort of the pressure around the ball and, and got their hands to the ball more than, than Brisbane. But negative 16% overall for accuracy um, mm. across the game, which is Adelaide's second worst result in any game this year. So that's really what it came down to, I think. I think Adelaide did everything they possibly could to give themselves a chance in the game. Just accuracy, yeah, didn't hold up. Off the off the cuff, Jake, mm. Adelaide playing finals next year, regardless of whether they make it or not this year? Uh, it's very difficult to say because there are so many teams. They'll be in the, that mix again. I think yeah. they'll be sort of, you know, six to 
you know, 12th. That's so tight. It's a game or so that separates the, a lot of the time. But they've shown a lot of great signs. I mean, they could have easily beaten Melbourne a few weeks ago, could have easily beaten Brisbane, and then all of a sudden... And Collingwood get... twice. Yeah. So, I mean, we thought they're... we thought after that Melbourne game was probably over, but they've just sort of kept themselves alive a bit. But, yeah, no, they're a good side. They've got, they've got uh, some young players to be excited about, and they, they'll get a bit more production out of Thilthorpe and Rochelle and some of these guys who have probably been a little bit down. So that's probably a good sign, the fact that they haven't been having to carry a huge load and uh, to get production. So yeah, I'd be bullish if I was a Crows fan. Okay. Uh, Blues and the Ds. The Blues were at their ferocious best around the contest, especially with pressure numbers. Yeah, and, and it started early. So last time they played early in the year, Carlton got smashed in contested possessions and lost the inside 50 count in all four quarters against Melbourne. So yes, yeah, which, which was a real rarity. Yeah, exactly. It was a sort of a uh, one of the one of the few times this year where I think Carlton's been beaten in all four quarters. You know, they had that bad patch where they lost six or seven in a row, but there was always one or two quarters where they were in the game. That Melbourne game early in the year, they just got beaten in all facets. Whereas, yeah, twenty-four to four, the inside fifty count after quarter one. So it's the equal second most inside fifties by a side in any quarter this year. I think it, um, Sydney had more in a quarter against West Coast in that drubbing um, a few weeks ago. Um, and it's yeah, Melbourne's fewest inside 50s of any quarter this year and, and Carlton's most in any quarter this year. So really set the tone. Their pressure factor was really high. It was the third highest pressure factor of any quarter as well across the first quarter, 224. And again, I, I don't think Mel, you know, Melbourne almost won the game and we talk about um, a really close score review probably getting Carlton over the line. But Melbourne's pressure factor in the final quarter was actually their lowest in any game this season. So it was almost like Carlton just so hot and heavy at the start of the game that yeah Melbourne were still in it and it was a low scoring affair but Melbourne weren't able to sort of chase and put pressure on like they have in fourth quarters um, in that game as I said that was their lowest quarter of any game this year um, we talked about the derby a little bit a while ago but it was just a domination you look at um, some of the disposal counts uh, where the Eagles just couldn't match it with the, the Dockers yeah, just couldn't again, get their hands on the footy you know sort of apologies to the Dockers I had a quick look at you know some numbers to pump up them but they just they just brutalised a team that's really really struggling and I thought for the West Coast probably the one the number that got me <laughs> West Coast, uh, 30, 36 back half turnovers, they're most in any game this season. So you, again, nice. you just think of trying to have a little, and I just spoke about North, contest, and let's just try to win some contests. You think West Coast, they've, they're very good at that kick mark games, so slow, protect the ball. There's been a few games this year, and, and I've spoken about it a lot, where they've actually you know been uh, outscoring teams from turnover and getting beaten from clearances, West Coast, because they do... They are able to set up and protect themselves, but they just lost all of that against the Derby. The, the one area game, you don't want to turn it over in your back half. You do it the most, you know, of any game of the season that comes in round 22. Um, and yeah, 58 points went back over their heads from those turnovers, which is their second most in the Yikes. season this year. So it's just getting worse and worse for them. The end of the season can't come quick enough. Uh, the Hawks and the Dogs. Hawks, are, look, seven wins. Yeah, uh, Jared Barker famously Steamed stood where I'm colleague. standing right now. <laughs> yeah. What did he say? They wouldn't win a game for the year. All year. Well, they've won seven. And I mean, outside the Blues, one of the form teams of the comp. I don't think anyone wants to play them. They're, they look, they're, they're good. shaping the eight. They are continuing to shape the they eight. And they, they could play, continue to shape yeah, the eight. Yeah, and they played the Ds this week. So um, mm. who knows? Uh, I don't think anyone would have thought they'd win too many games, as I said. So they've been good. And the young midfield, I mean, mm. we've spoken about it a couple of times. Yeah, but just they're all 24 or younger. Yep. Um, it's hard to ma- imagine or, or remember such a core group at that age that is producing so well at this early. 
They're going to be re- they're going to be handful in a couple of years' time. Big time. Well, they're a handful right now. I mean, some of the stats coming out of this game are, yes. are really interesting. Exactly, they're a handful. So you talk about you know Hawks and they've got high high uh, octane ball movement and quite skillful and a lot of uncontested <laughs> possessions, which is how they've beaten Collingwood and the Bulldogs. But then the other one I looked at is they had 20 broken tackles for the game. So that's the Bulldogs trying to bring them down and Hawthorne just brushing them off. Um, John Newcomb style. Newcomb, so I was going to say, yeah. Newcomb leads the comp in it this year, but he had five. Warple had four, That's Weddle had three, Will Day had three and a few others. But the 20 broken tackles for the game is the most by any team in any game this year. So poor tackling from the Bulldogs, but just also just awesome strength from the Hawks. Just on that with with Newcomb. So he leads the comp in broken tackles this year, as in he breaks he the breaks tackles. He breaks the tackles, So yep. just, I imagine someone, you know, a few years ago might have been Dustin Martin. No, might it's, have been. it's the Dustin Martin stat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like, that, that's a, that should not go um, unnoticed stat. or under the radar. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Saints and the Tigers... Uh, what did you notice from this game? Yeah, it was actually... So across the game, wasn't high scoring. Uh, it was played under the roof. But it was actually the fourth easiest game this year that the team's been able to go end-to-end in. So both St Kilda and Richmond had their best sort of transition games for the year. Um, both used the... Cor- so fourth highest match percentage for using Corridor coming out of defensive 50. So both teams really attacked each other. Um, and you look at the Saints. The Saints were negative one for contest. They only won the clearances by one. So... The inside stuff, again, isn't Richmond's strength, but St Kilda didn't beat them up there. It was the plus 10.5% kicking efficiency that St Kilda's kicking efficiency was that much higher than Richmond. So both of them tried to take the game on and, 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 and pick the eyes out of each other, and St Kilda was able to do it, whereas Richmond, yeah, just couldn't hit the targets. Winless in their last eight at Marvel, I think, now the Tigers. Just one of those, um, well, since Dimmer mentioned that they don't like going down the road. Haven't won. Haven't won. Well. They've had one draw in that time. Interesting. Mm. Uh, and the final game for the weekend, uh, the Power sent a statement after a, a string of bad losses um, and made it tough for the Giants. Yeah, also, to I make probably I did sort of throw up some questions. I was going to look at the second half. I thought the Giants sort of came back into that game quite well. And again, we speak about Port's defence not being strong. They conceded, I think, 10 or 11 goals after half time to the Giants. So that's a little bit of a wonder watch for me. But across the game, Port just stuck to their MO. So they want to j- just generate. Uh, a lot of territory, keep the ball locked in their forward line and generate score from their forward half. So they generated 55 points from forward 50 chains. So kick nine goals, one. That's an equal club wreck. So that's the equal most they've ever kicked as a club and the most by anyone this year. So that was just dump the ball forward, get a stoppage or Giants win the ball and you win it back off them and you're sort of launching your scores from forward 50, which Port had done all season long. We're able to, a lot of this was in the first half where they set up the win. But as I said, in that second half when the Giants sort of Took the game on. I thought they were able to put some goals on the board quite easy against a, a, mm. a team that should be, you know, up there for the premiership. Uh, well, one we're about thing... to talk a bit more about Port's premiership chances in a sec. Mm. Go on. No, I was going to say one thing I noticed watching that game, um, and I, I might be way off, but Port Adelaide do they do they score the most goals from open play, as in not from set shots? I feel like a high percentage of their goals come from just open play. Yeah. Uh, that's a fair question. Maybe we'll get He's researching on that. it yeah, now. We'll get the, the Wi-Fi sure. good enough in the month. Take a couple of minutes. <laughs> we'll get back to you. Uh, listener questions. If you if you want to get these in, we're at Footy Tips on Twitter, and you're more Love than welcome these. to. Yeah, we get some great ones. We do get some good ones. One from uh, from a colleague of ours, Neil Seawang. Oh, really? He's uh, he lodged one, and I think this was off the back of Jeremy Howe's work on Tom Stewart on the weekend. Uh, so sending a a defensive forward basically to a, to an interceptor to try mm. and limit their impact. He asks. Uh, does sending a defensive forward to a gun interceptor actually work in affecting games? And is this something that's happening more regularly? And what did you make of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it. so there are a few players that we 
see it happen to a few times. I think um, James Sicily, we've seen someone play yep. on him to try and um, nullify his influence. Harris Andrews a couple of times, I think. Yeah, and, and Tom Stewart, um, as you say. Yeah, I, I think it's a tactic. Like, you know, we spoke about last week with Finn McGuinness. So whether it's, yeah, whether it's a midfielder or a forward or a defender, if, some, if you're a good player mm. and you're the opposition, you want to try and limit what they're doing um, on the game. You'd want to be a certain type of player to do it, though, because I think the value of someone like Jeremy Howe having played both positions is that he can actually hurt you on the scoreboard. Well, you've got to be accountable for him as well. Yes, yeah. so it needs to go two ways, and, and there have been a couple of names that have popped up that have tried to do this throughout this year. Yeah, so there is, exactly, and it has probably happened a lot more in the last six or seven weeks. But again, I think the first part of that question was, does it work? Still to be decided, and that's a big thing. We talk about taggers, and we talk about Finn McGuinness, and why doesn't everyone do it more, is because... We track 40 minutes matchups to be a major matchup, and that's when we sort of track that you're being tagged. If you're on someone for 25 minutes and they really hurt you in that 25 minutes, you're not going to go near them again, so it's not going to count as a matchup. So again, most of the the matchups that do make it through to the system are the successful yeah. ones, the ones that you've stuck with and, and kept it to. But again, looking at some of these lockdown forwards, if you will, some of them have been persisted with without actually you know, bringing their opponent below their usual output. So the first one that I noticed uh, earlier this year was Jake Malksham. Um, played on Harris Andrews in both of the Melbourne-Brisbane games. So it was around two earlier in the year um, where he sort of went to him and then he went to him at the, at the G a few weeks ago. Um, he locked down Harris Andrews, Callum Wilkie and Caleb Marchbank in the last few weeks, Jake Malksham, and all three of those have been just below their usual output. So it's not like he sat on him and, yeah. and really made it hard for him What's to get his, it. But, do, do you know off the top of your head what his offensive impact was? Uh, in that time, again, the one of those games, I think ago. it was the, his second game against Harris Andrews was the only game where he had more offensive impact mm. than he usually does. So again, he's sacrificing Whether a little worthwhile. bit of his game yeah. to, to make the, the others play less. But one of the big ones from the weekend, I know we're sort of talking about Jeremy Howe on Tom Stewart from Friday night, but Riley West uh, went to James Sicily, and I think it was mainly in the second half. So we had him on him for 53 minutes across the game. He conceded to Sicily negative 0.5 rating points per 100 minutes. So I think Sicily is about a 14 or a 15 point average across 100 minutes. Uh, in the second half, yeah, he just went to him and just sort of locked him down. What about that holding the ball he got when Sicily... Did you see that one where he from came behind up the, sort of behind? From the yeah. Guy should, that, should that have been called Talk back? About a close tag. That's, I, I, that's, that's one of the funny ones I've looked at. It. The umpire can only do so much. So if the umpire hasn't had time to say clear out and James Sicily chooses to play on, then surely... If, there, there's no offside in football, so you're never out of you're never in the wrong spot to sort of Cheeky. continue the play. So as soon as the umpire keeper throws the ball out, yeah. and someone comes from the net and yeah, but as, soon as the umpire in, calls play on, every play is live. But he's a, in the square when the when Sicily yeah, is in the square as well, out, yeah, which shouldn't be. And we've yeah. seen we saw it with Petrarca running two weeks in a row where he was there's a defender about to take a take their kick and he's just sort of waiting off he's not on the mark but he's waiting for them to sort of take that step to dive in front and smother it and twice he got they pulled it back and said you can't do that if we had a head of football we'd so know we get some which way is it I think it's yeah so just a couple of other names that have been doing that lockdown forward role in recent Sorry. weeks Will Hayward's <laughs> done it on Ballard and Luke Ryan uh, in recent weeks and Cooper Sharman's another one so we know about James Sisley had one mm. of the best individual games against St Kilda earlier this year he Certainly went did. Cooper Sharman went to James Sisley the second time they played plus in in other recent weeks he's played on Charlie Ballard Jacob Wiedering um, as well so yeah a few names of some guys that again Sharman and Will Haywood can probably kick you a couple of goals but they've really been sent down to just make sure that the intercepting marker can't just run and do his own thing all day uh, another quick one from the listeners. Lowest a team has been on the ladder two rounds out from the end of the home and away season that has made the grand final? Uh, 
I think I looked at premierships. I think no, this was making grand final. Was seventh the Bulldogs in twenty sixteen. So the one, the, so the, the one that won from outside the four. Two games to go. Yeah, mm. and they finished seventh. Yeah, uh, and then last one. What's the lowest a team has been ranked in terms of points against? that has won the flag. And we look at this stat as one of the key metrics of being whether you're a premiership team or not. So if you're in the top six of that stat, you're uh, well, the last, you know, yep. X of the last 10 premiers so, have won and the it flag. Is, it's interesting. So the premiership standards report we use, we use the last 10 premiers just mm. to keep everything recent. I mean, if you won a premiership 25 years ago or people playing the same game style, um, probably not. So again, we keep everything to 10 years. But looking at this query, we had to go back to North in 1996, uh, was 7th for points against. Mm. Um, and three years later in 1999, they were 10th for points against and won the flag. They're That's the a decent on- firepower in that forward line in that time, though, yep. didn't they? And they're the only two times a team in a 16-team competition, so from 1995 onwards, they're the only two teams not to be ranked in the top six for points against and win a premiership. So, so I we- feel like this is coming from a Port supporter because they're currently not so flash in this game. They're dropped to 13th now for points against. And I, when I realised that, I knew they were, they, were cl- <laughs> they were close to 9th and 10th recently. And again, I don't look at every team's season numbers every week. And I, I just ran it before the pod for Jake. And once I saw that number 13th, I mm. thought I'd made the comment. They can't win it. That is That is such a... A different defensive profile than we've seen, and we're going back now to '95. We're going back almost 30 years for it. Um, I mean, the game against the Giants really kind of sums that up. Yeah. So again, North in '99 being 10th and and seventh is their other one. 13th is a long way from even those two rankings. Mm, so they're power fans out there. Uh, three huge games this week with massive implications on the finals. I know we talked a bit about the top four and the Blues, uh, but there are three games involving teams sort of in that sort of sixth to eleventh range. Uh, that are currently basically playing a wild card week this week. There's no need for a wild card week. Oh, when you've got round stupid, 23. Not to um, mention 1v2. A bit of an underrated, yeah. under the radar 1v2. Yeah, a little know. bit. A little bit. I think there's just more interest in the, the kind of sudden death games that are well, currently scheduled. So yeah. there's um, GWS and Essendon on Saturday afternoon, then there's St Kilda Geelong on Saturday night. And basically 10 minutes later, Adelaide and Sydney start. So the scheduling's a bit... Yeah, so I believe if Geelong lose, they're out. They can't make. Well, it. so winner stays alive for Giants and Dons. The, yep. the loser can't. The loser can't make finals. Yep. Uh, Geelong must win to stay alive. Saint Adelaide Kilda can must still win. lose though. Yes. Yeah. Adelaide must win. Sydney would want to win. Um, and I think they can still make it if they lose one of them and and win well. And then the Bulldogs should be beating the Eagles. Um, yeah. Hawthorne Melbourne. That's just not the team you want to face if you're the D's. Yeah, the G. I reckon Car- Carlton fans will be... They'll have their eye on that one, I reckon. Uh, anyway, Certain, just... Certainly if the Blues um, get over the Suns. Uh, banana peel game? Oh, it is. <laughs> I mean, the only saving grace, and I've got my Carlton hat on here, is it's not a... Um, it's not a 440. The 444-35 Dewey game up, on the, on, up at Metricon. The Fox Footy Special. Heritage Bank. Uh, yeah, not good. But the fact that the Suns lost last week, I think, yeah, motivation... Probably drops a little bit. Christian, hey, did we get the answer to that to that port question? <laughs> oh yeah, no. So you you got the right state, but yeah, the wrong team. So ah. no, they are high. So they're third highest for general play scores. Adelaide the highest percentage. Sydney the Pretty second highest gross. percentage. So, so what what are we talking about percentage wise? Uh, let me get the report up here. Throw me on the spot again. <laughs> so, so this is just for a bit of insight. 40. This is what it's like for the hour leading into so the this, podcast or the yeah. hour post podcast. This is the percentage of points you've scored. So forty nine percent or forty eight and a half percent of Adelaide's points have come from general play. Um, forty six and a half percent of Sydney's have come from general play, and forty five point one percent of Port Adelaide. Okay. And who's at the bottom? 
Uh, West Coast at 36.3 and Geelong at 36.8. So Geelong have, again, there's there's sort of you know, deep diving into Geelong numbers, really poor ground ball numbers in their forward 50, but really good mark oh, numbers in their forward 50. So good. He's the one picking it up. And, yeah. uh, anyway, there are three, three games that we're kind of going to look at here. So Giants versus Essendon, St Kilda versus Geelong, and Adelaide versus Sydney. Demystify this for us, Christian. Can you see where these games may be won and lost for each team? So again, just, yeah, with the three games, looking at recent form and how they're going and probably what the two, two teams will be trying to do. So we spoke about Essendon, that end-to-end ball movement that they had going against North Melbourne. They were able to go end-to-end, but they just haven't been able to score from those forward 50s. So again, uh, Giants have been 15th for defending end-to-end ball movement in the past month. So Essendon will be will sort of hope to have that measure that they will be able to go end-to-end against. They've been mm. second for inside 50 differential Essendon in the past month, and Gi- Giants have been 12th. So... Two things is Giants haven't been able to defend ball movement and Giants haven't been high in the territory game. So if Essendon can sort of, yeah, keep the ball forward and sort of get potency um, from their forward line, they're a chance to win. But again, the Giants is probably the opposite way. They've been one of the most potent forward lines. So if the Giants can match it and stay even in the inside 50 count, you'd think they win. Uh, But as I said, the the Essendon ball movement is probably going to be the one that troubles the Giants if, if the Essendon can get that going. Who are you backing, Jake? Uh, I think the Giants. Hmm. St Kilda versus Geelong. Uh, we did say that the Saints can possibly lose this and win one other game to mm. make it, but the Cats really need which, to get this which win. Which does give the edge to the Cats, I think. You I think? Mean, it's, well, it's Do just, or die. Yeah, it really is, whereas the Saints obviously would want to win, but they can afford not to. And again, it's probably different. I, I had that feeling going into Friday night for Geelong, though, that they I tipped Geelong because mm. that was more of a, a do-or-die game than, than uh, coming up against Collingwood. But again, with Geelong, probably the especially in the past month, their defence has probably been the one that opened up. So I spoke about Collingwood being able to mm. score 64% of entries, um, the third highest. So they're actually 16th for conceding a score per inside 50 um, in the past month, so the third easiest side to score against. St Kilda have been 18th in that stat, but across the past month they've actually risen to 10th. So they're actually trying to get some, you know, more potency out of their forward line and score a little bit more if they can keep that going. If they, again, similar to Giants' Essendon game, if the inside 50 counts even, but St Kilda are starting to hit and hit some targets inside 50, they could, uh, you know, trouble the Geelong defenders. So. Uh, I think St Kilda's fall line is going to play a big part. And the contest game, again, probably yeah, usually when these is. two teams come up against each other, Geelong's in the, in the, uh, ahead in the ledger of the contest stuff. But ground ball get differential in the past month. Geelong is 16th, St Kilda's 5th. Clearances in the past month, Geelong is 17th and St Kilda are 12th. But St Kilda are more um, are even with their opposition, whereas Geelong are, are in the negative. So Saints are the third for points scored from clearances in the past month as well. So the stoppage game could actually be a key for St Kilda in this one. Uh, whereas I said, probably the last four or five times these teams have played in previous years, Geelong's had the clearance edge going into the game. Oh, maybe the Saints. Maybe the Saints pull it off and end the Cats uh, back-to-back hopes. Maybe. Uh, no, I, th- I think Geelong will win that game. Interesting. Marble Stadium. Uh, Adelaide versus Sydney could be a shootout. This is the one that excites me. So you talk about it could be a shootout. So past month, first for points for uh, Sydney, second for points for in Adelaide. But then you look at pressure applied, first for Adelaide and third for Sydney. Um, and then points from turnover differential, Adelaide number one and Sydney second. So these teams are very good at scoring, but a lot of that scoring is coming from that defensive pressure and that ability to turn it over and go one way. So... Um, I think this this one is probably one that you, you don't want to miss the first 20 minutes of this one. I think they're going to go hard at each other. We could see some exciting goals, but um, yeah. So which game are you watching live? 
I, seriously, once I ran the numbers for Adelaide Sydney, this game's got me excited in terms of the way these two teams really go at it the same sort of way, that contest, that high scoring. Just, you know, the stat yep. that we just looked at, the two highest percentages of kicking goals from general play, so they're not mm. going to try to get beautiful ball going forward. They can have that chaos ball. It's For me, yeah, Adelaide Sydney is, is priming to be a, a, could be a cracker. I reckon the Crows might get a hold of them, to be honest. Been good at home. Yeah, at home. And like we said, before, same sort of reasoning with the Cats. Like, have, just have to win. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we're getting into red time of this podcast, brought to you by Subway, which means it's time for Is the Hype Justified or Is It Hyperbole? Jake, despite missing four games, James Sicily should be first pick in the All-Australian team. Uh, unlike last year, where he was sensationally snubbed from the team, he <laughs> will be in it this year. Um, he might be my second, third, or fourth pick, but he's not my first. Oh. Uh, it's Toby Green, and any other answer is just flatly wrong. So there's no other player in the comp that's got a peer or, or somebody else in the league that's as close to him in terms of production. And every other position, whether it's ruck or key forward or wing, any position, you've got two at least, if not three, four, five. You look at midfielders, there's 12, 15 players that are throwing their hand up for selection for the Australian team. In terms of small to mid-size forward, it's green and daylight. What he's produced this year, and he's missed two games as well, but even with that, it's been extraordinary. He's averaging 2.8 goals and 18 disposals per game. If you drop that down to just two goals and 15, there's only one other player that joins him, Jeremy Cameron. Like, he's so far ahead of everybody else. And and that's just... So we can look at his raw sort of numbers, but then you look at the eye test as well. And the eye test tells you, God, is this guy the best player that plays? He's so smart. His ball use is so good. Um, and his finishing is as, is as great as anybody. He's the first pick in the team, in my opinion. He's third All-Australian um, selection. And, you know, call me crazy, Toby Green, but I'd have him captain Skipper. as well. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, Christian, I might throw this one at you. With Adelaide to face West Coast in the final round of the season, Taylor Walker will come from behind to win the Coleman medal. He's only yeah. five behind at the moment. Oh, yeah. Um, and... Carlton are playing so well as a team, they're not they're not relying on Charlie as much. So um, yeah, I was two three weeks ago. I thought, now nah, the common medal's done and dusted. But now nah, that the race is on, and, and he's every chance to catch him. Jake, any thoughts? Um, so interestingly, if if I think Walker would need to peg two back this week and go into the last round three behind. If he's three behind, uh, Kerno with Kerno playing the Giants and Sam Taylor playing on him, I, I think it's Walker's. Yeah, interesting. What's West Coast motivation? Well, I was going to say, if Adelaide loses this week, what's Adelaide's motivation not to kick to him? Yeah, well, that's a good point. I hadn't really considered that. But the, yeah, for his Coleman chances, it's probably yeah. better the Crows the lose. The team first if the Crows need to yeah. win still. But Whereas if, if they'll the probably just say, well, let's win it, get him the Coleman. Mm, interesting. That's a good, yeah, I don't mind that. Good for <laughs> you. Final points. Harry Sheasel will win his club's best and fairest and be the first first-year player in the AFL era to do so. Yeah, best and fairest are always um, tricky to kind of work out. It's obviously very different voting to, say, the Brownlow or something like that because um, the voting is a lot... Even for well, it's a lot, key voting, positions and, yeah, and niche more, players. The voting goes down further. So um, he's certainly a chance. I think Nick, La- Nick Larkey's probably another player that... you know He's yeah. third in the Coleman. But the thing with Larkey is... He kicks goals, that's great. It's a bit like, sound like Bailey Fritcher a couple of years ago. He kicks goals, but it's kind of it. Like, it's a good thing to, to do, but it's not as if, you know, he might kick five goals and have seven touches. How many has he got for the year? Uh, he's got 56 goals that's for the year. That's pretty good. So that's pretty good. He'll probably he'll be over 60, you'd think. Um, yeah, I'd be surprised if Sheezer wasn't in the top three, though. 
Yeah, fair enough. Uh, we're at Footy Tips on Twitter, as I said earlier. If you want to get some questions in, comments, feedback, uh, have you got Jake about his nicknack thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we've run over a bit over time today, but uh, heaps to get through. Jeez, it's an exciting run home. Maybe oh, the, it is. Maybe the two, the two a week going forward next uh, year. Let us know. We uh, we got some good feedback on that. So um, we did. Yeah, a little bit more. We need to we convince might, the bosses, though. Yeah, I reckon we might do it. Stu, if you're listening, the, the people are keen. Finals? Do we start finals. during finals? Maybe too, that's... Too few games. That's all right. Okay. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll keep you updated as to our plans. Uh, plenty to come in the next uh, few weeks as finals approaches. We'll get uh, Jasper Chalopar on again to talk all mm. things draft uh, for those clubs who are now turning their attention towards... Uh, the next crop of juniors. Um, yeah, we'll break down all the finals. We'll probably have a Brownlow special at some point. Oh, we certainly will. Yeah, it did well last year. Yeah, it was. People love the Brownlow. They do. Um, it's yeah, it's just the Brownlow predictor. Each week gets updated. Two weeks to go. It's extremely tight at the top between Dacos, Bont, and Petrarca. And yeah, it's is just... that the same on Champion Data's? Yeah, I think the same top three. We think we have got Petrarca second. Yeah, sorry. I uh, yes, no. I have Bont second, but yeah, uh, it's close. I mean, it, the th- it, any of them could win. Um, and Zach Butters as well making a little late charge. And I tell you what, though, I'd want to be. I'd still want to be Dacos, mm. uh, clubhouse leader. I reckon he might be. He might hold on. Yeah, well, clubhouse being that he's stopped at the sixteenth. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, where are you watching the Tillies on uh, Wednesday? Uh, yeah, try to get the kids involved with this one. I was yeah in the office on Saturday night without them, so yeah, try to watch it next to them on mm. get on the couch. Doing anything special, Jake? Uh, no. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. No, I'll be watching watching it with my partner, so it's that special. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we we'll, we uh, we might go out and watch it actually. Oh, good luck finding a spot. That's yeah. that's what I'm, I'll say to you. I've tried to get a few pubs and they've been. Yeah. Well, out. I was waiting. You said you were going to invite some friends over to watch it, so I, I, you might extend. No, that was the, last week. You that might extend the courtesy to me eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, to everyone at home, we'll speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.